Welcome back to Lightshed Research, a podcast that puts our research notes in your ears for your listening convenience. September 8th, 2022. 11 topics we are thinking about coming out of summer 2022. With summer 2022 now in the rearview mirror, we thought it would be useful to lay out the 11 topics and issues we are thinking about. From the collapse of linear TV to why Comcast is so desperate to buy something, is Disney Plus pricing aggressive? Or a bundling ploy? How Netflix and Disney's advertising plans differ? Zuckerberg's vision will make us less present, not more. Is WWE for sale? How many fans will watch the NFL on Amazon? Why Elon Musk will pay $54.20 for Twitter? Why Hollywood is retreating to pre-pandemic sequential release windows? Winter is coming for regional sports networks? And why MSGE is so undervalued today? Number one, linear TV's death spiral. The second highest rated linear TV series, Thursday Night Football, is now on Amazon Prime. ABC's Dancing with the Stars is moving to Disney+. NBC's considering scaling back primetime by one hour each night to look more like Fox. And all the broadcast networks are shifting primetime programming towards unscripted and news to reduce costs. At the same time, the content on streaming TV is growing more compelling from an increasing array of services. As the quality and breadth of programming on linear TV diminishes, it should come as no surprise that cord cutting has accelerated. The key question for legacy media execs is, if sub losses are high single digits, with viewership continuing to drop, evasive action is clearly needed post, do they have a plan to grow broadcast and cable network revenues in EBITDA? We doubt it. If cable networks are entering secular decline, Why does Disney want to own ESPN ABC? Why does Comcast want to own NBCU anymore? What does Warner Brothers Discovery or Paramount do, given their heavy reliance on cable TV cash flow, let alone smaller pure plays like AMC Networks or A&E Networks? Number two, Comcast's Brian conundrum. With the cable industry's broadband growth story now over, as Walt Lightshed wrote about this past May, How does Comcast evolve? Comcast was incredibly savvy in timing their purchase of NBCU, but the aforementioned headwinds facing broadcast and cable network TV are undeniable and growing stiffer. Comcast's acquisition of Sky was poorly timed, with its video business now facing the same challenges as the U.S. multi-channel video business. At the same time, its streaming service Peacock is bleeding billions of dollars, relying heavily on licensing sports and live entertainment, WWE, to drive engagement as the original strategy of limited investment has morphed dramatically, much to shareholders' dismay. The good news is NBCU's theme park business remains hot, benefiting from the post-pandemic boomerang in demand, and Universal Pictures is benefiting from a flexible approach to monetizing content on its own platforms and licensing to third parties. Unfortunately for Comcast, the bad outweighs the good, with management eagerly seeking a transformative acquisition after missing out on WarnerMedia. The first attempt was to buy EA, though that did not work out. Comcast's vertical integration works against it regulatory-wise, as it seeks acquisitions, and breaking apart the company will only enable transformative transactions if Comcast chairman and CEO Brian Roberts is willing to cede his family's voting power, similar to the choice John Malone made to save Discovery enabling the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. 
with no meaningful synergy between Comcast, Sky, NBCU beyond the balance sheet strength of the combined entity. Breaking up Comcast makes strategic logic if there are obvious merger partners for the pieces, none of which are obvious right now without Roberts ceding control. Three, will Disney's pricing flex drive the bundle? Disney CEO Bob Chapek is making one of his boldest moves yet since becoming CEO, essentially forcing Disney Plus subscribers who have never had to watch ads to tolerate advertising or pay 38% more starting in December 2022. No other streaming service has ever started inserting ads into an existing ad-free streaming service and told subs they have to pay more to avoid them. While Disney Plus was certainly underpricing the passion of their superfans, the Disney Plus pricing changes are clearly aggressive versus its peers. Given the narrower focus of Disney Plus versus a broader service such as Netflix or Prime Video, we suspect Disney Plus has effectively reached its U.S. TAM, having exceeded 44 million subscribers in the U.S. and Canada implies about 40 million U.S. subs. In turn, revenue growth is now dependent on pricing, and Disney is clearly betting that subscribers will either be okay paying substantially more or tolerate advertising to keep their $7.99 price point. Flexing on price is consistent with what Chapek has done at Disney's theme parks, where new variable admission pricing based on time of year and pricing schemes, such as Genie Plus, have substantially increased guest spending in the past 18 months. Given the addition of high CPM advertising to add tier subscribers, Disney is likely indifferent to whether a subscriber stays at $7.99 or moves up to $10.99. The risk to Disney's pricing strategy is that it has become so easy for consumers to pause subscriptions. There is no friction to cancel a subscription and rejoin months later. With 50% of Disney Plus subscribers' families with young kids, we suspect churn will be quite low in that cohort, as the service is used as an on-demand babysitter like DVDs used to be. However, for Disney Plus subscribers without kids, we wonder if subscription pausing will be more significant. Disney is not expecting any meaningful step up in churn from the pricing changes. That feels aggressive, albeit maybe Disney's aggressive pricing push is really about driving subscribers from individual services into the Disney bundle. As you can see in the chart embedded to the right, for subscribers that take both Disney Plus and Hulu, They will pay substantially less, even if they do not care about ESPN+. The Disney bundle saves them 44 to 50% if they were care about ESPN+, and 18 to 23% even if they only wanted Disney Plus and Hulu. Pushing more of Disney subscribers into a multi-service bundle should lower churn and could lead to incremental viewing hours overall, benefiting advertising, as you might not have added the third service, particularly ESPN+. It will be fascinating to watch how this bold move by Chapek plays out as Disney looks to accelerate its path towards streaming profitability. Number four, Disney and Netflix take notably different approaches to advertising. Both Netflix and Disney Plus are set to introduce advertising for the first time in Q4 2022. As subgrowth flows, both companies are looking to advertising as a lever to reinvigorate revenue growth. For Disney, as mentioned above, introducing advertising is not about making the service cheaper to attract more subscribers. For ad-supported subs, pricing will be unchanged from current levels. We suspect at least 50%, if not two-thirds, of Disney Plus subscribers will opt to stay at the lower price versus paying 40% more. In turn, Disney Plus could have 20 to 25 million ad-supported subscribers on day one of launch. On the other hand, usage of Disney Plus is still quite limited 
about one-third of Hulu and one-eighth the size of Netflix, which reduces the advertising opportunity, even with a large base of ad-supported subs. It's also worth remembering that young children who watch Disney Plus will not see ads. Unclear how much viewership that represents. For Netflix, they plan to launch a new ad-supported tier that is cheaper than the current standard rate plan of $9.99. Higher tiers are $15.49 and $19.99. In turn, on day one of launch, Netflix will have zero subscribers to their ad-supported tier. We suspect Netflix will end 2022 with a low single-digit percentage of its subscribers taking ads. We'll likely grow to 40% plus of subscribers over the next five years. Netflix believes that a cheaper ad-supported tier will expand its U.S. subscriber base that has stalled and actually started to decline. With average Netflix daily watch time per house subscriber over two hours, every ad-supported subscriber creates a substantial revenue opportunity. Remember, with password sharing, there may be as many as 100 million U.S. households using Netflix, with only 67 million paying for Netflix. Unlike Disney, which is acknowledging that it is at or near its TAM, Netflix clearly believes it can get to 80-plus million U.S. subscribers. Number five, Meta what? After listening to the three-hour Joe Rogan interview of Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg embedded to the right, it is hard not to walk away with two thoughts. Number one, Zuckerberg is obsessed with becoming an operating system for the VR-AR metaverse that feels far further out in the future than any rational investor's time frame. And two, Zuckerberg is not terribly interested in innovating on Facebook and Instagram's core products. The never-ending problems and challenges, headaches of trying to tune an algorithm that reaches billions of people has pushed Zuckerberg to find personal activities that force him to completely tune out everything else. Whereas when he talks about his vision for the metaverse, you can see his enthusiasm and passion. Yet when Zuckerberg talks about some of the benefits and use cases of the world he envisions, as in the Rogan interview clip embedded to the right. It is hard to stomach and makes us wonder if the future will drive humans to be even less present than they are now given everyone's phone obsession. Do Meta's employees really buy into Zuckerberg's vision? Meta's valuation is certainly attractive at these levels, but with TikTok growing stronger by the day and Meta's focus increasingly on an uninvestable metaverse future, it is a hard stock to get excited about today. Number six. Is WWE for sale? WWE's succession plan has been on again, off again topic for investors, especially as Vince McMahon aged into his mid 70s. The debate was set to become imminently topical as WWE begins the process of renewing its Raw and SmackDown TV licensing deals. If Vince wanted to sell the company, most buyers would be interested in controlling where WWE's content resides, especially media companies that own cable networks and streaming services. The debate was expedited and intensified following the reveal of Vince McMahon's transgressions and his subsequent retirement. WWE announced new leadership, which kept the company not only under Vince's voting control, but installed McMahon's family members into key management positions previously held or responsibilities controlled by Vince. Stephanie McMahon as chairwoman and co-CEO, and Paul Levesque to chief content officer. The family control is balanced by Frank Riddick's new role as president and CFO, and Nick Khan as co-CEO. Nonetheless, many investors believe the current structure is just temporary, until a sale over the next two to three quarters. If the McMahons do not want to sell, there are potential buyers. Conventional wisdom has Comcast NBCU as the likely buyer. 
given the significance of its current WWE licensing deals, including Raw, and the company's pay-per-view events. Such a pursuit would have to be greenlit by Brian Roberts. We are unsure if he's interested in tuning, turning his relationship from rent to buy, despite Comcast's aforementioned need to diversify. Quite simply, WWE is not likely not enough to move the needle for his company if he doesn't have a personal proclivity for the content. Fox A is another candidate with that company at a crossroads as linear TV headwinds grow. The Murdochs may want to sell, but if not, they will need to reinvent Fox A as the MVPD bundle wanes. Netflix is an option too, as Reed Hastings has said a number of times, he would prefer to own the league if he were to move into sports content. The company we see as the best matches endeavor. The wrestling business is unique in that WWE creates seven plus hours of live content per week. In any deal, the team doing that right now needs to be generally be left alone to execute, while WWE leverages the expertise and infrastructure of the acquirer. Endeavor certainly has a lot to offer in terms of unlocking sponsorship, helping media rights negotiations, though that is supplementary to Khan's expertise, and cross-promoting with UFC, where the current overlap with WWE's fan base is less than we would imagine. Will WWE be on the block? We are skeptical that the McMahon family wants to sell. WWE has always been a family business. Both Stephanie and Paul have spent years preparing to take over the company. It's also hard to judge emotional connection. Stephanie certainly sounded emotionally tied to the business in both her Q2 earnings prepared remarks and in her answer to our question, even if they will properly evaluate any opportunity. The situation reminds us very much of CBS and Viacom. Investors believe that when Sumner passed, Sherry Redstone would finally sell. That did not happen as she looked to preserve the Redstone legacy. If they do sell, we believe the family would want to maintain both ownership and operational leadership, more fuel for Endeavor as the most likely acquirer in a sale, given how Endeavor has left UFC operations alone. We believe WWE investors should focus on the opportunities created by new leadership. Content is the lifeblood of WWE's business, and the WWE fan base is palpably excited about early progress under Paul Levesque's leadership. The results have shown. The company reported Levesque has architected a 15% spike in Monday Night Raw viewership and double-digit increases in social media engagement, which represents the first five Raw episodes under his helm versus the prior five. Note SmackDown is actually down slightly over the same period, as some markets have been preempted by NFL exhibition games. The timing is especially good as WWE enters negotiations for its rights deals. Next, there are opportunities on the cost side which we expect Frank Riddick to attack over the next year. In the past 12 months, WWE reported $115 million of corporate expense. We've always thought those expenses were too high under Vince. That should change. Number seven, NFL makes long-term bet on tech platforms. When Disney moved Monday Night Football to ESPN from ABC in 2006, viewership fell by 25% compared to the 2005 season on ABC, as shown in the table embedded to the right but it used the power of the NFL to accelerate affiliate fee growth and make ESPN effectively undroppable by MVPDs. Note, games were still broadcast over the air in the two competing teams' home markets, included in the reported viewership. Back in 2006, ESPN was in just over 90 million homes, compared to 111 million total TV households, with most consumers watching ABC and ESPN via their MVPD subscription. 
the shift of Monday Night Football was simply switching channels, not a terribly high bar for consumers. As Thursday Night Football has now shifted to Amazon, the question becomes what type of viewership is possible? Amazon has pitched advertisers on a similar mid-20% drop compared to last season's viewership on Fox. While over 80 million U.S. households have used Prime Video in the past year, it's unclear how many households have Prime but do not use Prime Video. It is not as simple as changing the channel was back in 2006 for Monday Night Football. Although the shift from linear to broadcast TV to streaming TV is rapidly accelerating, with more and more sports now living on streaming services, we would be surprised if the viewership drop was not more significant. For the NFL, they are sacrificing short-term reach, knowing that the linear TV ecosystem is in secular decline, and they need to build the value and power of their content across streaming TV, a smart, long-term strategic move. We suspect similar logic applies to Sunday Ticket, which we expect to head to Apple TV Plus versus DirecTV, should be announced soon, as the NFL builds its importance across tech giants. Worth noting that both Amazon Prime and Apple TV Plus are investing heavily in content beyond the NFL, both sports and non-sports, which should lead to which should lead and benefit sports viewership over the next several years as they give consumers more reasons to engage with their platforms and stumble upon sports content. Number eight, Musk is trying to obfuscate what really matters at Twitter. There's been a significant discussion about how many of Twitter's users are real versus bots. While Elon Musk, a whistleblower, research orgs, and many others debate the issue. It is irrelevant to Musk's signed Twitter acquisition proposal. Musk's Twitter purchase agreement makes no representation of what percentage of Twitter's overall users, in total or daily active users, are bots. It simply relies on Twitter's public filings. When you then turn to Twitter's public filings, they do not talk to the overall percentage of bots on the platform. Rather, they state that under 5%, of monetizable daily active users, MDAUs, are bots, as shown in the 2022 Q2 10Q statement cited below. In addition, Twitter's statement clearly states its MDAU bot estimates could be wrong. Here's the quote. The number of MDAUs presented in this quarterly report on Form 10Q are based on internal company data. While these numbers are based on what we believe to be reasonable estimates for the applicable period of measurement, There are inherent challenges in measuring usage and engagement across our large number of total accounts around the world. Furthermore, our metrics may be impacted by our information quality efforts, which are overall efforts to reduce malicious activity on the service, inclusive of spam, malicious automation, and fake accounts. For example, there are a number of false or spam accounts in existence on our platform. We have performed an internal review of a sample of accounts and estimate the average of false or spam accounts during the second quarter of 2022 represented fewer than 5% of our MDAUs during the quarter. The false or spam accounts for a period represents the average of false or spam accounts in the samples during each monthly analysis period during the quarter. In making this determination, we applied significant judgment. So our estimation of false or spam accounts may not accurately represent the actual number of such accounts and the actual number of false or spam accounts could be higher than we have estimated. We are continuously seeking to improve our ability to estimate the total number of spam accounts and eliminate them from the calculation of our MDAU and have made improvements in our spam detection capabilities that have resulted in the suspension of a large number of spam, malicious automation, and fake accounts. End quote.
Twitter never represents what percentage of overall users are bots. In turn, it should have no bearing on Musk's Twitter purchase agreement, unless one believes Twitter's public filings were fraudulently filed by its executive team, that new metrics in their SEC filings were false. It feels inevitable that Elon Musk will ultimately pay 5420 for Twitter. Number nine, Hollywood's movie windowing 180. The global pandemic created an opportunity for Hollywood studios to experiment with collapsing sequential release windows to push content faster to their streaming services. The 75-day window between theatrical and home entertainment collapsed with studios experimenting with day and date releases, 17 to 45-day windows, and pushing SVOD releases ahead of home entertainment, transactional. Consumers were the clear winners with faster access to content as part of their existing streaming subscriptions. With legacy media companies facing increased financial pressures and growing fear over the long-term profitability or lack thereof of their streaming services, Hollywood appears to be refocusing on windows to drive shorter-term profits versus the long-term success of their streaming services. Hollywood, led most vocally by Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav, justifies the shifts by talking about the lack of an economic model for direct-to-streaming movies, leaving money on the table vis-a-vis home entertainment, and that theatrical releases increase the value of movies on streaming services. There is no doubt that if you look at narrowly on a film-by-film basis, you can maximize a film's profits through the sequential release pattern. However, theatrical releases for six-plus weeks and selling content on home entertainment platforms, physical and digital, unequivocally weaken the impact of a movie that has its premiere on a streaming platform and is not fresh or new. There can be one-off global blockbusters where consumers simply cannot get enough, but those are rare exceptions that studios should not extrapolate a strategy from. Cough, cough, top gun. The reality is Hollywood does not really believe in the long-term economics of streaming, and they're shifting back to their windowing comfort zone. Hollywood is increasingly scared that the level of investment needed to build a scaled, profitable streaming service is too high. The irony is that Hollywood's windowing 180 creates real opportunity for streaming platforms that are not burdened by their windowing legacy. Number 10, what happens to the Sinclair RSNs? Last month, reports emerged that Sinclair's RSN business, Diamond Sports, had retained bankers to explore strategic alternatives via SBJ. Since Sinclair acquired the RSNs, Diamond Sports EBITDA has collapsed from $1.6 billion in 2019 to management's guidance of $183 million to $200 million in 2022. The situation is likely to get worse as cord cutting accelerates. More sports move to streaming, driving sports fans away from the bundle, and Diamond's own streaming service appears to be DOA. In turn, Diamond's only option appears to restructure in bankruptcy, which could be tied to a sale. The quick The the key question for the MLB, NBA, and NHL owners is who should take over ownership of the RSNs, and how do they create a compelling streaming service, individually or jointly, to future-proof the business, ideally combining local in-market rights with national out-of-market rights. The catch-22 for leagues and owners is that the more compelling a streaming offering becomes, the faster cord-cutting will happen, pressuring the league's cash cow. Sports leagues need to hope that national rights deals rise enough to balance out the pressure they will bear from declining local rights. Number 11, investors are missing the value inside MSGE. The 2021 combination of MSGE and MSGN made little sense to investors. 
Since the breakup of Cablevision, the Dolans have driven towards continually highlighting value and giving investor more choice. Additionally, the RSN business, as we mentioned earlier, is challenged, and many MSGE investors were immediately turned off. The results have been a significant slide for MSGE, which is currently down 52% from its March 2021 high, right before the leak of the transaction. This performance incurred in a tape where live entertainment exposure has been welcomed by investors. Last month, Jim Dolan returned to his usual playbook in announcing a spin of MSGN and the core entertainment assets highlighted by The Garden and other New York City assets from The Sphere and Tau, aka principally the Las Vegas assets. We have been befuddled by the stock price since the announcement, down 11%. To be clear, we're not fans of the RSN business and understand investor reticence to own RSNs in 2022. The ideal for many would be a decombination of MSGN and MSGE. However, for those that are absolutely averse to it, there is now the opportunity to own the more speculative and higher growth Vegas assets without the RSNs. This immediately should put the stock in a better position than pre-spin. Of course, this would matter little if the stock was overvalued. As with any spin, investors will look to put a value on both MSGNY and MSGLV entities. In this exercise, investors will find significant value at the current MSGE share price. There are a number of ways to look at valuation. Historically, investors would do a sum of the parts approach that valued each of the company's assets, putting a price on the garden and the air rights, valuing the spirit, capex spent, etc. Clearly, that approach does not fly since the MSGN transaction. Pending a longer future discussion with multiple approaches, we decided to take what we believe to be the absolutely most conservative method. The, that the highlights include assuming MSGN goes bankrupt eventually, although if the network is not dropped again, this is very unlikely. We also assume no free cash flow generation from the asset in the interim period, though it is nicely free cash flow positive. For the rest of the business, we use multiple analysis with what we consider conservative multiples and projections, particularly for the Vegas sphere. We start with MSGNY asset. Given the bankruptcy assumption, we assign zero value to MSGN and remove its debt, which is ring-fenced from the rest of the company. Then for the core assets, we use a fiscal 2023 adjusted operating range of 125 to 140 million, with a multiple range of 10 to 12 times. This is a strong discount to anything live entertainment related, despite the real estate underpinning. The result is an average value of those assets of $27, as shown below. For MSGLV, we take a similarly conservative tack. Starting with Tau, we project an adjusted operating income range of 70 to 80 million and an 8 to 10 multiple, though this should compound at double digit growth. For the sphere, we project first full year adjusted operating income of 60 to 80 million, which would be a massive discount to the company's implied projections in the MSGE and merger docs of nearly 200 million of sphere adjusted OI in the sphere's first three quarters. We use a multiple of 12 to 14 times. This would value the sphere at $720 million to $1 billion, despite a price tag of $2 billion. We strip the remaining sphere capex from cash and assume zero value for the land purchased in London. The result is an average valuation of $41.47. Note, MSGLV would own one-third of MSGNY, which would be used for pseudo-buyback activity, but we're taking that out of the analysis. Bringing it together, we come to an average stock price of 68.46 in this everything goes wrong scenario. Yesterday, the stock closed at 55.87. Finally, 
the head scratching first transaction now actually makes sense in retrospect. Dolan simply found the MSGN cash flow was best put to work being allocated to the sphere, CapEx, and it was not a permanent solution. This was more of a move you would expect from the Liberty entities, not Dolan. 